Our scripture tonight is from the Gospel of Mark, the second chapter. I'm going to be reading the first 12 verses. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. As I've been sitting here participating in the service thus far, I just feel tonight it's a little more casual than I'm used to, a little more upbeat than I'm used to, and I'm still thinking about that grandma's summer challenge. And so I think it's time for granddad's summer challenge to you. Except this is going to be a lot easier. I'm going to give you one word And two weeks from tonight, I'm going to walk back in here, and I hope I remember, as I see each of you, to ask you, what was the word? Okay? And I'm going to give it to you in such a way that even if you have a tendency to forget things, you won't forget the word. All right? Here's the word. Restoration. Now, during the prayer, twice I heard Greg pray, about somebody being restored. And as I listened to the prayer testimonies tonight, I kept hearing things that sounded to me like restoration. Now, that's a word we use in a lot of different contexts. Uh, On the 4th of July, I was at the Villa Park Parade, and so I got to see some restored cars, and they're fun to watch. Um... Two weeks ago, I saw my brother-in-law in in Cleveland. It's a brother-in-law. He's much older than I am, and I only see him once a year. And his first words to me this year were to poke me like this and say, you're getting a paunch. 
Now, I've thought since then about what it would take to restore this body to what it was like when it was 21. That's pretty depressing even to think about, isn't it? I, I grew up in the 50s. I uh, went through my teen years and became an adult in the 50s, the Eisenhower years. Some of you wish we could restore the 50s. They were so peaceful. They were so wonderful. Restoration. This afternoon, I watched my son-in-law drive the car up near where I was. My daughter and four of the grandkids were in the car. And as soon as they stopped, Chelsea, age 21, went around back. In fact, all of them, but Doug went around to the back. Chelsea opened the trunk. And as she opened the trunk, that back window shattered into a thousand pieces. I didn't ask her, but I'll bet she would have given most anything at that moment to be able to restore that window. And I went over and looked at all those pieces later, and I thought, this window's never going to be restored. You got it? Two weeks from tonight, I can ask you, what's the word? And you'll tell me restoration is the word? I'll reinforce it. Uh, not too long ago, I went back to Iowa, and I... I discovered that my childhood home, which was so new and so wonderful when I grew up there, was deserted, and I walked through it. And I've thought about, oh, could I go buy that house and restore it? Ooh, that would be expensive, wouldn't it? Restoration. Now, what's the point? Well, the passage tonight is about restoration. And you may not remember my three points, but if you can remember the word restoration, you'll have a hook to hang this passage on in the days ahead. Here's this guy, this guy who needed two kinds of restoration, who experienced a twofold restoration, who experienced his physical body being restored, but who, like all of us, also need to be set free from sin to have a spiritual restoration as well. I'm going to suggest three keys from this passage about restoration. And maybe you've already experienced them, and therefore you thank God and you say, well, I know some others who need these things as well. The first key to being restored as we find it in the passage is a desire. For restoration. I have to want it. I have to want to get back from where I am now in my condition to where, where that I see is so much more ideal. In this case, here's a man who is paralyzed. Paralyzed. He has an obvious physical need. It's obvious to him. It's obvious to His friend, it's a severe paralysis. Apparently, he's also a man who's had a spiritual need and sensed it. We'll get to that as we develop this passage. But boy, he had something that wasn't right, and he so needed and desired restoration. 
The biggest problem, as I see it, in our nation right now is not physical problems. It's those millions and millions of people who now call themselves nuns who don't even sense that they have a spiritual need. They, I'm fine. I'm fine. That, it seems like it's at a level we've never experienced before in our country. Before you can use this key, desiring, you have to reach the point where you sense your need. And when you do that, if you're like this man, then you want some help. And you do whatever it takes to round up your friends to help you. I, I don't know how he could imagine he was going to get helped, but he desired it enough to find four others who would go with him. And what he wanted was to go to this Jesus that, that has become famous and is, is in the area, but there's no way he can get to see this Jesus. And when he talked with his four friends, somebody came up with the idea, well, we can carry you there. And he agreed to that and said, let's go. But when they got there, the crowd in the house and apparently around the house is so big, there is no way that he's going to get close to this Jesus. And I don't know who came up with the idea that maybe we could take you up on the roof and get you down that way. Huh. Well, if it was a typical Near Eastern home of the first century, uh, there would be some, uh, some narrow steps on the side of the house, sort of like a ladder almost. Not, not a broad staircase where you could walk it up with a person on a, on a stretcher, but some, almost like a set of steps, a, a ladder. And somehow they got themselves up on the roof and then managed to pull him up to join them on top. Now, again, if it's a typical house, uh, well, it's, it's quite a piece of construction. When they build it, they put some rafters up. Well, that seems normal. And then they covered those rafters with some sticks. You think, well, that doesn't help very much. And then some brushwood on top of that. And then some kind of mortar on top of that brushwood. And then some dirt, some hard dirt on top of that. So you have five layers, probably, on this roof. And there were variations of this in that day. Now, apparently it was strong enough that the weight of five men would not crush it. You've got a lot of weight here involved in this. So here are five men up on the roof, which is pretty strong, and uh, now they're going to deconstruct it, right? They're going to begin to open it up. <laughs> I don't think they would get very far until if I were down below in the crowd, I'd be looking up and beginning to wonder what's happening in this situation as they peeled off those layers and as things more and more dropped down into the room below. They must have been distracted, everybody down below. And, but he's even willing to be lowered by ropes down through a roof inside this house. And all five of them who were in this project must have had a tremendous desire to get help. In a very different context, when James wrote his letter, he said, 
you do not have because you do not ask. Well, if this guy is going to end up having, he's certainly willing to ask. The desire is there in this situation. And the problem was not failing to ask. Boy, they were eager. So the first key here, the first key of restoration is a desire. You want it. The second key is, in this case, a confidence in Jesus. You wonder how they got that. What had they heard? Well, maybe they'd heard some of the things that Mark just mentioned here. In the verses just before that, uh, you have a man with leprosy being healed, and then you have Jesus sending this guy away, and he talks everywhere about what he's experienced in the restoration. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. He's become very popular at this stage in his ministry. And and the ingenuity of these men certainly reflects not just a desire, but a growing confidence that Jesus is the solution to the problem here. That Jesus is where they must get At verse 4, they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. And Jesus responded to their faith. At verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, their faith, and I suppose that means all five of them, When Jesus saw the faith of the five of them, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, that's not where we would have started. The man's paralyzed. We don't connect physical brokenness and sin. what they did in the first century. There was a common connection between sin and sickness in their mind. And they see Jesus starting with the most basic restoration first. He doesn't start with the physical, which is the less important of the two. He starts with the sin issue and forgives sin first. But to the Jewish mind, to the the culture of that day, Physical disability was some kind of exposure of unrighteousness. Boy, there's been sin here. Well, he's disabled, yeah, but that's because there's sin behind it. His suffering is caused by sin, and his suffering helps pay for his sin, and there's no recovery unless his sin is somehow forgiven. And I would guess this paralyzed man probably had absorbed those ideas, And he probably was quite comfortable with the idea of Jesus addressing the sin problem first. Now, that may have been common in the first century, but Jesus didn't always accept that kind of connection. Sometimes he challenged that. If we were to read John 9, the question there is about this blind man. And 
Who sinned? Did the blind man sin? Did his parents sin? What's the cause of the blindness? Where's the sin? And in John 9, Jesus says, no, no. You can't connect those two things. You don't put sin and sickness together. And so we've, in our pendulum, we've gone the other way, right? We almost never think of putting sin and sickness together. But in this case, in Mark 2, apparently they are together, and Jesus accepts them as together. Sin and sickness are somehow related, and he he starts with the basic problem. He knows that physical healing is always just for a time. It's never permanent. But healing from sin can be permanent. So if you trace the steps in the ministry of Jesus, early on you see him showing control over nature. And now he moves on to control over sin as well. Well, this whole thing is troublesome. And there's a fact-finding board already on the scene. When the plane crashed on the West Coast a week ago, the fact-finding board was there immediately, and we would expect that. And in this case, some of what Jesus has done before has caused a Jewish leader fact-finding board to be established, and they're present. Verse 6, some teachers of the law were sitting sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Those rabbis were the theologians and the politicians of Israel. They had considerable power in both religious and general law. They had not yet challenged Jesus openly, but were getting close because they, their mind says, boy, This guy is now guilty of blasphemy because we know that only God can forgive sin. And yet he openly says that he is forgiving sin. Got an interesting email this week. I have only one sister. She's 84 years old out in Iowa. And uh, we can go six months, nine months without talking on the phone. We occasionally exchange emails. The one this week said, I just heard a Roman Catholic priest and a Lutheran minister both declare to someone, your sins are forgiven. She said, can they do that? So I thought for a couple of days and uh, gave her a response probably just yesterday about that. But that's, that's the question, isn't it? Can they do that? How can Jesus say he's forgiving sins? Only God can do that. Well, that's true, isn't it? But what if Jesus is God? Oh, that was inconceivable to them. That can't be. That can't be. How are they going to handle that? Jesus, in the story, 
knows what they are thinking. Hmm. That was, you know, just did he have special perception? Is, is this miraculous in himself that, that he, can, he can hear what's going on in their heads? And he responds to them and, and he, he gives them a theological riddle at verse 9. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? Oh, theological riddle. Hmm. And he just lets it hang there. And then in the very next verse, he uses a very significant phrase in verse 10 that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This phrase, Son of Man. Now that phrase shows up in the Bible, not unusual as a phrase, and usually when it shows up, the phrase Son of Man is, is just saying, you know, I, I too am human. I'm, I share in humanity. I, I have the qualities that you have. But in the Old Testament, there's an exception to that in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, in one of those obscure passages, a king is being described who is being described as a king over all the world forever. And he's called the Son of Man. And now looking back, I'm not so sure anybody caught it that day, but looking back, we realize that this Son of Man in Daniel is not just an ordinary man. He is indeed God in human form. And that Jesus loved calling himself the Son of Man. Now maybe sometimes he was saying, I too am fully human. But so often I think Jesus was trying to lift their eyes a little higher back up to Daniel with the expectation that Jesus is a lot more than an ordinary human being. Nobody else called him that. The disciples never talked that way. It's one of the most majestic titles in the scripture. It's a supernatural being who has come to earth. And therefore, he has authority and ability. You may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Hmm. I didn't think to quote this to my sister. I should have. Yes, there is one who has the authority to forgive sins. The Son of Man. And he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. What is, oh, this is a miracle, but it's a miracle of restoration. We finally get to the word. It's a miracle of restoration. And total restoration will eventually come to us through Jesus. We haven't experienced it yet. And there is no total restoration apart from Jesus. Now, the paralyzed man understood experientially. He understood because his sins were forgiven and he was physically healed. And he had put his confidence in Jesus, the God-man. Now, I suppose Peter was one of the ones who was standing there that day, taking this all in. Much later, a couple years later, Peter is recorded in Acts chapter 3, 
as preaching. He has an audience in Acts 3 at verse 19. When he gets to the climax of his sermon, he says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Listen to this. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Well, that's what we're about tonight, isn't it? We're waiting for that moment when he will come back and restore everything. And what we saw in Mark 2 is just a down payment of that. So a key to restoration is to want it. A key to restoration is to trust Jesus. And a key to restoration is to obey what he says. That's the third key. I won't take long on this. <laughs> you know, the man, the paralyzed man could have said no thank you at any point. He could have said it to his four friends who said, we're, we're going to take you on a stretcher to see this Jesus. No thank you. He could have said it when they said, we're going to put you up on the roof. <laughs> oh, no thank you. He could have said it when they said, we're going to drop you down. No thank you. And he could have said it when Jesus said to him, get up and take up that mat. But that's not even what he did. There's instant obedience all the way through here. He believed that Jesus has the power to heal, and he's going to try to, his, his, all they can do to respond to whatever Jesus tells him to do. Well, you and I don't have Jesus here in the sense of speaking in an audible voice, but we have Jesus here in the scriptures. And the scriptures over and over reminding us that there's a close tie between faith and obedience. In some parts of the Reformed world in America right now, there's quite a raging debate about just how does obedience relate to faith. You can get a lot of heat about this conversation. But it's pretty clear that genuine faith is indeed followed by obedience. I started out pastoring a church in western Pennsylvania in the 60s. A lot of members that sometime before I got there apparently had stood before the congregation and professed faith in Christ, but I didn't see them. They weren't around visibly. Now maybe they assumed that they had been restored because they at some point had stood up. But there's no restoration without obedience. The obedience has to follow the faith. Hmm. Well, as I draw this to a conclusion, let me just observe that God is glorified through this whole process that we read about here in Mark 2. It's told, the same story is told by Luke. And when Luke closes his story, he says, he departed to his own house glorifying God. And that indeed is the conclusion of the story. The man stood up, went home, glorifying God. 
And here in Mark's version, last verse, he got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Wow. These are keys for restoration. For you, for your neighbor, for those that the missionaries are seeking to reach, for those who call themselves nuns, for all who need to respond to God. To acknowledge that a relationship to God is broken down. To tell God, I want to be restored. To trust in Jesus. And then to do what the scriptures say to do. And somewhere in that process, they hear the words of Jesus. My son, your sins are forgiven.